Hello and welcome to We've Got History. We're up to part five of episode nine, and by now you'll know we're discussing project one. It's part of a long-term plan regarding university histories to understand what narratives and evidence of under or misrepresented communities can be found in the material that the CRC holds. Three interns, Ashling, Samantha and Nuzat, delve deep into documentation concerning historical connections between Edinburgh University and transatlantic slavery. All seven sections of episode nine are designed to make sense if you listen out of order or pick and choose the topics you want to hear about. But we do recommend starting at the beginning to fully understand what the internship project was all about. In this part, you'll be hearing some of the stories and connections that were uncovered during this internship. These involve the mention of themes that some listeners may find upsetting. For example, medical experimentation during treatment of enslaved persons, lack of consensual relationships, and discussions surrounding the value placed on human lives, although we don't go into detail on any of the descriptions mentioned. In the second half of part five of episode nine, the conversation moves to detective work, to erring on the side of inclusion of data, the realities of working during COVID-19 restrictions, and the prospect of dealing with a topic that is divisive in the media at present. I was wondering, do you... Did you have a favourite kind of find or story narrative that was unpicked during the internship? Oh, I mean, there were so many. Um, I think I was, I mean, I was quite interested in the legal documentation. I think there were some cases of, there's a famous case, Knight versus uh, Wedderburn, which was all about kind of looking at the notion of slavery and then perpetual servitude. So long story short, uh, Vedavern brought over this, uh, an enslaved person from Jamaica. So basically when Knight came over to Scotland, he stated that he no longer had to legally be enslaved. Vedavern still wanted Knight to work for him and argued legally that he had to work under the notion of perpetual servitude. And it's this back and forth of kind of legal vocabulary and this legal um, kind of ambiguity. And this kind of continues in some of the other notable legal cases. I mean, there's another case involving a Dalrymple, which involves the role of baptism in enslaved persons in terms of does baptism, notions of baptism and liberty. So uh, that was kind of of real interest. But I think the Royal Infirmary was definitely a really interesting one. I dealt with a letter, which, again, is one of those sources we have no idea what the context is. It mentions an individual called uh, Mr. Fife, Dr. Fife, who we knew is a benefactor of the Royal Infirmary and benefited from slavery. But this is an individual to um, a Henry Cullen, uh, related to William Cullen, is kind of mixed race but is inc- uh, and is incredibly good at what he does. And they want him to get a senior position within the Royal Infirmary. As part of this trade, he is willing to offer is as a replacement a uh, female enslaved person that can breed that is the wording we have no idea how what the connections are what the plantations involved are here the institution that this is one that really really needs research and so that's kind of one that I found probably the most shocking out of everything we've found but kind of the one that's in kind of informed more my own research has been Robert Rowan Anderson the architect who uh, he built the old medical school on TV at Place. And he also submitted, he was asked by the government to submit a design for the Imperial Institute. 
in London. Um, now, his design didn't win because it was deemed too hospital-like, so it was related to the old medical school. But this institute came to exhibit collections from India and the colonies, and in, in done so in quite a kind of derogatory way. It was designed to kind of inf make these nations inferior to the British Empire. This was a kind of period of economic depression and things like that. So it was really the British Empire needing to strengthen their authority by kind of subordinating the colonies further. So it's kind of interesting to see kind of the university's possible influence on the, this kind of huge imperial infrastructure. So that's also been kind of a notable source that came up. But definitely, I would say the medical one has been the more, probably the most interesting for me in terms of notions of medical experimentation, quite scary things, which I didn't. And I mean, you hear about, but in terms of having a direct connection and hearing the university had kind of these links is certainly, I think, something that probably should be looked into further. So we've got a couple of letters from notable academics uh, within the university medical schools. We've had Joseph Black and William Cullen. And they had a number of correspondences with plantation owners and, and merchants. I mean, Joseph Black's slightly more complicated because there was one, we know of a letter from a merchant back to him, but we don't know if this is purely anecdotal or if this is offering some kind of medical advice. So for context, in this case, this was an individual, a merchant called A.G. Alexander, and he was asking or telling Black about a medical experiment on the tropical disease called yaws. And the European practice of dealing with yaws was using mercury. They basically thought it was some kind of similar mutation to syphilis. But local doctors had a much more natural kind of approach, which was a lot less, which was much more effective and fundamentally didn't result in fatalities. So basically they start this medical experiment where they take groups of enslaved persons with this disease. The European doctors try the trial theirs, the native doctors trial their kind of treatment. Uh, fundamentally, the native doctors do much better, but that's the kind of tales that are coming out of that. But it's difficult because you don't want to ultimately say is jo Joseph Black was 100% involved within the, the Atlantic slave trade, because we don't know, but we don't have his response back. We don't know if that is purely offering advice, as, I, as I've said. So that kind of, in terms of the re defining those relationships can be quite difficult. William Cullen was a lot clearer because he, the medical school was deemed the kind of medical magnate of Europe. It's hugely important. I've just written a paper and William Cullen taught a number of students who later went into the plantations and he kept in contact and he kept registers which the CRC have it's a great resource and he speaks to one of his students asking for flowers of zinc it was a delivery of flowers of zinc to treat an enslaved person's epileptic fits and we don't know if William Cullen actually sent this but we do know he does have connections and does give medical advice to some of these kind of colonial doctors as well. That relationship is a lot clearer. But that kind of defining kind of these connections and what kind of ramifications they have whilst ensuring that these documents and this information is at the forefront of that discussion has kind of been our key aim. You've got to be quite sensitive, but ensuring you're getting all the, all the right angles and all the right perspectives in there.
So there's definitely lots of opportunity for further research um, in the future for scholars and students. So it's a, it's a really horrible, unfortunate story. I, I would like to share the story of Agnes McElhose. And so she had a, what we now think might have been a, a very overly friendly affair with uh, Robert Burns. And so she, um, they, they have quite a few very friendly letters back and forth. She was what, um, his Clorinda, which he then went on to write poetry about. And so her husband had worked as a lawyer and a publisher, and he was in Jamaica. And they, they were separated for quite some time. She stayed in, in Scotland with her children, and she decided, I am ready now to try and reconcile with my husband. And so she got on a boat. She went all the way to Jamaica without letting him know. And when she got there, she found that he had been engaging in a, I, I don't want to call it a relationship because I think that, that that doesn't give enough credit to the lack of consent in this relationship, but but had um, taken a woman who was a slave as his mistress and had multiple children with her. And so she said, heck no. And she stayed at a hotel and she got on the next boat out a month later. And she, they, and she ended up having a lot of issues trying to get her children back. And there was a lot of issues between contacting her husband in Jamaica and trying to get her children back to her in Scotland because he wouldn't let the children come back for quite some time. And that's was a horrible discovery because, like I said, I think calling it a relationship isn't giving it the isn't giving it the nuance that it requires because clearly this wasn't a consensual relationship. However, um, I thought that that was a pretty horrible story. And when you talk about when we talk about the relationship between Agnes and and Robert Burns, you, you, we certainly don't we certainly don't discuss her connections or his Robert Burns's connections with transatlantic slavery. Mm. Robert yeah. Burns himself was connected um, with transatlantic slavery, um, not necessarily directly, but he he had the intentions. He had wanted to go work for a plantation owner as a bookkeeper at some one time in Jamaica. And we have um, I discovered letters between him and a friend, him telling his friend, I'm doing it. I, you know, I'm going to Jamaica. I'm done living in Scotland now. And then about two or three years later, I found another letter where a man said, don't go to Jamaica. Stay in Scotland. This is where your place is. This is where your home is. Don't go to Jamaica and become a bookkeeper, which clearly influenced his decision because he never decided to go. Mm. Can't trust those tax collectors. <laughs> Interesting, yeah. This project, I guess, kind of in the early stages, like the internships as a whole, the, the CRC are talking about, you know, years in the future and a, a decade long project. And as you say, you're assessing what documents may be relevant here in the CRC, but also in regional stuff and international stuff. Was there a place that the relevant documentation was heading towards? You know, were you focusing on future access, future study, general knowledge? So what I was focusing on was what we were really advocating for is future study and not just 
people like us who have these these terminal kind of positions that you know after six months your your job's up and you have to kind of put your hands in the air and hope that somebody else is able to take it up but somebody who's a postdoctoral researcher or a or a phd student who's able to really spend years focusing on this information and able to create something substantive out of it so that's really what what i was putting in mind because when you're looking at the big challenge I, I would say of this research was when you're looking at online archives, not always is the information, is there enough information to make a good judgment call about if it's related or not? So oftentimes I, I erred on the side of inclusion. So if it's correspondence, then I, I hope that perhaps there might be something related and include it, but I can't always say because it just says correspondence between date A and date B, but it doesn't tell you what it's about. I mean, and that's just that's the bugbear of being in archives in general because they, I mean, archivist job isn't necessarily to write down every word of a document. Mm. And, but now in the age of COVID, I think things are changing a bit on that front. But, um, but a lot of times when you're looking up archival metadata like that, it doesn't include enough information to be able to make um, very specific judgment calls. So we erred on the side of inclusion in the hopes that one day another future researcher will take this up who has years of their lives to put into this and will be able to create great research a book perhaps out of the, out of what's going on oh excellent yeah if you yeah almost like a relay the the council provided you with the 12 subheadings and very you know small bullet point information you've added to that and then yeah someone someone else to take up the mantle i would say probably on average i had i believe four five of these subheadings and i had over 300 i think it was 380 potential connections to transatlantic slavery that I had documented. So certainly if the other two researchers on the project had, and I, I know they did, similar amounts, then that's that's quite a bit of, some. we did quite a bit of the legwork on the research that somebody would be able to have going forward. Oh, exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The initial detective work. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So part of my research was Samantha and I made presentations to members of the Edinburgh City Council about our findings and what we think should be done with those findings in the future. And when I was going back through some of my earlier data, I was like, I'd, I hadn't been thinking about that in a while. That's really interesting. It was it was part of like rediscovering it and rediscovering my, my passion for certain of for a number of these topics. To share with them what I think were the were the best avenues for discovery of more more sources and more connections. Yeah, excellent. In a way, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of speak to all the interns a bit for the podcast because I feel like when stuff is maybe stilted funding wise in terms of we don't know whether future interns are or maybe when they will be coming in and and where we might be across the world by that point is you know you you dive in for months and there is a wealth of knowledge in your head that over time is going to start to not disappear entirely but certainly maybe get a little bit more bumpy and shaky and and then you know perhaps they're diving in and, and doing similar stuff to what what you had already done. Yeah I mean I hope that what happens when it's taken up by somebody else is that, that there's that they don't have to reinvent the wheel so that the 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 Excel sheets that I produced and that the the descriptions I made were were good enough and were thorough and detailed so that they don't have to go back and and rediscover things that have already been done. And I I think that that was my biggest focus was to do this detailed and thorough so that 
somebody can take this as a jumping off point instead of having to start from the beginning. Nice, yeah. And like you were saying before about being inclusive about what you have at the beginning because you don't know everything that's maybe in these collections still. Absolutely. I erred on the side of inclusion. It's better to to have it not need than to need it not have it. Um, because it's easier to to find to to look at a source and then decide it's not worth it than to to the likelihood of you coming across something perhaps is, is less so than if I would have just included it in the first place. Mm. Yeah, I debated that myself a little bit. And then I when it came to kind of documentation by the end of things. A lot of the people that I'd found in maybe census data or whatever it was that I couldn't confirm for sure, but had all this information. And it was that thing of like, I really want to say it is. I've got that gut feeling, but technically I cannot say for sure. But here's all the information. Here's the reference numbers and the indexing, because you can, you know, if if more information comes to light in in different uh, stuff later on, maybe that will be the the tick box that you need to say like yes both born here blah, blah you know something like that absolutely and that's what I did as well the the greatest database that I think was the most useful for all of us and I think we would all agree was the the University of College London has a database called um it's like legacies of British slavery you can go in and just type somebody's name and all of the information and everybody who has had any type of involvement in transatlantic slavery will pop up. And it was so useful and it showed how much money that they had involved and, and what land they had. And it was it was just a, a wealth of information in this database. It was the, the impact of that was immeasurable to this research. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for how many hours can go into research and, I mean, without wanting to speculate, how much information that you can get without the ability to conclude with all this absent of evidence kind of situation. Yeah, I mean, I think that was the kind of the the blessing and curse of COVID is that when we started this internship, we were still fairly under under lockdown. Mm. Um, we've not been able to go and access the archives uh, to the extent that we would like. So we've really been going off the digital descriptions of these sources. So the, the, the negative side of that is there's context that probably we could have, we needed to kind of rule out or consider further some documentation. Um, but the plus being, I think we got through so much more material uh, than we would have done. I mean, I, I definitely spent at least two weeks looking at court of session. I got 1500 results. I remember one search and I spent about two weeks just going through all of them. Um, and that was in the midst of lockdown. And I, I think being able to have that time to actually sift through thousands upon thousands of hits um, was really helpful and it hopefully means that the the council and future academics have a lot more material to work with um, and to sift through Um, but as I say I think there's probably collections that we've gathered that we genuinely don't know the connection Um, so for instance Mm -hmm. Irene Nuzhat was dealing with um, Henry Dundas and all of us all came into contact at some point with the David Lane collection and CRC this David Ling was chatting with everybody, like notorious gossip. Honestly, there's so many lessons. 
Um, he came up in absolutely everything. We've still got no clue how he is connected, if he is connected, but because he's speaking to all these like notable either individuals or individuals who have benefited from colonialism or slavery, we've kind of thrown this into the database and gone, this is probably worth some kind of analysis and thorough examination. So, so COVID has kind of been good in some ways. I think we would have liked to have more access into the archives. I'm sure I think all of us would have. But I think for the material that we've got, I think we're very happy with the, the kind of the results that we've been able to find. Nice. Yeah, yeah, totally. Were you able to get on site much or at all? We didn't manage to get on site at all. I mean, I was lucky in terms of with my course, there was a couple of documents that we actually got to see, which were actually in the spreadsheet. So I was kind of, so I was lucky to see a couple of them, but we didn't manage to get in at all. I mean, we were quite lucky as well because we were able to use as many archives as we liked. So CRC was kind of the starting point and um, national records was critical. But I think particularly for my research in terms of the new town, which is much more about financial subsidisation, the British Library and the National Archives of the UK were really important, but they have a collection uh, called the T71 catalogue, which is about enslaved person reparations. So basically when abolition went through, those who owned plantations could file a claim to get some kind of financial reparation for the significant loss of not only land and profit which is kind of not really talked about as much. It's kind of abolition's kind of seen as this kind of cut off. Once it's there, that's it, it's done. It, but actually these individuals were not, didn't face any kind of consequence. They actually got financial kind of uh, validation for what they were doing. It's a really, really important catalogue for understanding where people made their money, how much money people got. And it's actually formed the basis of University College London Legacy of Slavery database, which we all used. Basically, it's a great website. Um, you just type in a name, a location, a plantation. It will give you all the data and it will give you the sources that were used to support that data. The T71 catalogue being the most important. But unfortunately, that is a totally physical archive. It's a huge extensive thing but it's nothing is digitised. That is a collection I would really like to see digitised because I think so many people could benefit from that collection because it covers Jamaica, Grenada, it, Grenada it's everywhere. It's really really important in terms of kind of financial reparations but it's also got kind of documentation in terms of what plantations look like but also enslaved person registers knowing how many kind of individuals were on these plantations um, and important lists as well but yeah I mean largely we were just dealing with kind of the description or the title and going off of our experience as we went along to determine whether these were relevant or not. Um, I think the only digital collection I came into contact with was Frederick Douglass literary collection in the Library of Congress, which has about, I think it's about, again, about 3000 documents, all digitised letters, and it's his wife, it's his daughter, it's a huge collection. But that was really the only one we could really get our hands on properly, uh, which was a shame. But I think, as I say, I think the sheer amount of material we gathered as a result of lockdown, I think, makes up for that.
when there's so much material or when you're one of the people sort of starting the beginnings of something and the basis of something did you find it I don't know maybe intimidating the amount of material that you were working with or is it sort of that excitement I think it was definitely it was definitely exciting I think there was material that because some of this had never come to light before or had not been seen or just been stuck in a box for years it was mm -hmm. really really exciting I mean I had the responsibility of looking at the Royal Infirmary and that was incredibly exciting because this was something that was noted by I mean within our meeting with Sir Jeff Palmer he was really quite keen to find out as much as possible about that and I think uh, CRC have actually started funding a PhD now on the, the Royal Infirmary and kind of Lothian Health Services um, kind of institutions. Um, that collection is literally a cardboard box full of financial papers, uh, medical records, servants, things like that. It has not been sifted through and being able to go into then the national records and find a couple of benefactors who may be or may not be linked was really really exciting but I think with this as well there is an element of you have to be careful much of this experience has been about self-education um I kind of started engaging with kind of colonial imperial narratives last year when I did a course called global architectures of colonial Latin America and it completely changed the way I explored sources and research and basically I never had an education in the British Empire or French Empire or anything like that and actually being able to see where this bias has been coming from some of these narratives and seeing that actually the complete opposite is the case has made me kind of question absolutely everything so it's a great research exercise in terms of if you want a healthy dose of paranoia it's great <laughs> It, it was you do have to you do worry about it because I think you want to be as respectful you want to ensure that you're getting all that data across in as accessible a manner as possible I think also because this is being spoken about in the press this is kind of also been spoken about in parliament and there's kind of extreme views you want you've got to kind of have an informed argument you need to ensure that you know your stuff but I think you also need to kind of block out some of the kind of criticism as well, whether that is kind of biased interpretation or just designed to kind of create sensationalist argument to stir up hate or uh, antagonism mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of it. So it's I think having now dealt with it for a year, I'm much more comfortable in having these conversations by dealing with this kind of contentious and, and often quite horrific material. But I think it, I certainly my research wants to go further and exploring kind of these routes to ensure that I'm learning as much about the manifestations of empire and its kind of ramifications and its kind of methods of colonization as well in terms of emotional manipulation, things like that, to really understand how this infrastructure works and ensuring how that persists and why it's relevant today. Mm. It's certainly a topic that's become very prominent in the media recently when grappling with a, with a topic that's become kind of sensationalised and divisive in many ways or quite antagonised for attraction in the media. Did it feel like a daunting prospect knowing you were kind of about to grapple so closely with these types of topics and representation? Absolutely, 100%. It always is. And yeah, to deal with our decision making so publicly or to, yeah, to try and pull out information from the collections and know that it is so 
topical that it will be poured over the process will be poured over and how how the, the work was done so yeah we were all a bit nervous about that but rightly so it's important i think and when dealing with these types of themes like structural racism or symbolic annihilation or the lack of representation in uh, organizational memory that if there's any discomfort to be felt by those managing the collections that we should just feel it and move on and as i said before just do the work anyway one of the things that we are acutely aware of is lack of diversity racial diversity in our team the archives team and the the crc team more broadly and there's only so much we can do on the spot to make to to, to change that um in the kind of first instance but what we what we can do is while that the kind of lack of diversity in the sector is being dealt with across the board in many organizations we wanted to make our our own effort to address lack of representation in our collections while we could so so yeah it's it's nerve-wracking because we're aware of the fact that most of our team all of our team are white and relatively privileged in the sense of being educated and having the opportunity to work in the university for example and so we're that's what makes us so conscious of looking outwards to other resources and to other discussions and debates around this topic and to try and pull in as much information as we can about changes that we could incorporate. Mm. Yeah, there have been shifts regarding an archive being a place that is kind of closed off to the public. I guess it's a different kind of closed off to what you were talking about just there, but it's beginning to open its doors and provide more and more access to what it's preserving and safeguarding and bringing many more people or cultures into the conversation. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Uh, yeah, I think this is some, an area that absolutely fascinates me. And I, even though I've been an archivist for 10 years, I, I don't know as much as I could do about it because it's a, a long-standing field. But basically, the field of community archives and how community archives have developed over many decades is is fascinating and also really important to this issue of, of uh, archives being closed off. So there are some organisations like universities, like banks, like schools, libraries, where only a certain few have been able to access materials traditionally because they're the ones that have access to education or to or to even to physically to these sites. And so archives have been kind of a very enigmatic, mysterious place for many, many people. They're not they're not something that the average citizen spends a lot of time in or the, even the average student in the university. The library is much more, I think, a library generally is like a, a public service that a lot of people get a lot of a lot out of and you have things like in a public library like mother and baby groups or safe spaces for people who haven't got access to other resources and things like that but because of the rarity and the kind of uniqueness of archives there has been a real traditionally and i mean this still exists and widely so but a real focus on the security and preservation of the materials and the consistency of the experience within the space because that's important so that we can know what's happening to the material and how it's being used. More recently I think there's been an absolutely more recently 
communities that aren't, aren't traditionally represented in archives or haven't been part of the long established organizations that have archives even, they've started to establish their own cultural memory, their own histories, their own archives based within communities. And obviously the real purpose of an archive is or uh, people use the material and benefit from it. So if you're creating a community archive, it's essential that the community themselves can be part of that process and, and use uh, the material and and also be thanked and, and, and be kind of respected for being part of that process. So I think that a very kind of large memory institutions like state libraries and archives or huge uh, long established university or, um, archives and libraries have a lot to learn about access in terms of making the space inviting for people who are actually the subject of the of the uh, collections. So traditionally what would happen is if if a, an archive, if a collection was seen as being really rare and valuable, then it would be taken from a community or an external situation and accessioned into an archive so that it could be preserved long term in our specialist repositories. Now that is a kind of that's a really noble and, and, and good work that we need to do that because we want to make sure that the collections are safe over many, many years, many decades. But it's often at the expense of people who are actually in the archives being able to access them because they're not part of that memory organisation or they're not part of the, the community that is feels comfortable in that space. Mm. So there is a, a much bigger drive totally established by the or instigated, should I say, by the community archives community <laughs> um, to open up the archive and bring people in. And if people want to sit down, have a cup of tea or have discussions that aren't in a completely silent you know, uh, environment or be next to the material and feel things about them, then that's you know, that's what they need to, to do. So I feel like the kind of future of archives is a collaboration between these really large memory institutions that have certain a certain environment in place and, and certain resources to hand and community archives which have are self-establishing and self-running and could really benefit from some of the resources that larger institutions have and that they should work together to make sure that the archives are accessible as opposed to larger organizations just taking the material from the communities and, and storing it away uh, away from them As we come to the end of part five of episode nine, we have two parts remaining. In the next episode, we discuss some common jokes in the archive sector and the backlog and cataloging that every institution faces today. The seventh and final section of this episode, looking into this internship project, will deal with the question of what information should be included in an archival record. And I asked the interns for advice for some hypothetical future interns that would take over this project. You've been listening to We've Got History. These episodes were recorded in December 2021 and March 2022. This was part of episode nine. The guests were Lorraine McLaughlin, Ashlyn Cudney and Samantha Carey. Episode hosted and edited by Lily Mellon. 